Hello, everyone. This is Joe Alviani of O'Neill & Associates in Seven Letter, and this is a special edition of OA on Healthcare. This is the first of our special series that will explore the widespread impacts of the Supreme Court decision in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, the case that overturned the nearly 50-year-old precedent of Roe versus Wade. In 1973, the Supreme Court of the United States handed down its decision in Roe v. Wade, a decision that held in part that the United States Constitution provides a fundamental right to privacy that protects a woman's right to choose whether to have an abortion. That decision finally fulfilled the vision of countless activists and advocates who had worked tirelessly, often at the personal risk of arrest or imprisonment or both, to make abortion safe and accessible for women across America. With the decision in Roe, women no longer had to imperil their health or lives by resorting to back alley procedures performed by unlicensed abortion providers or in other cases turning to dangerous self-managed abortions. Since the early leak of Justice Alito's draft opinion in the Dobbs case, and then the final release of the court decision, I, as many others across the country, observed the heartbreak and outrage of the many courageous men and women, mostly women, who worked diligently back in the early 70s for the rights of women to access safe abortions, and especially those who provided the means for women to travel to states where abortion was legal before Roe. Women activists like the Janes in Chicago and others like those who slept on the floor of the U.S. Capitol building all in a political movement that helped to forge a new age of reproductive freedom in America. As Sophie Gilbert wrote in The Atlantic, the fact that the seismic change in protections for women in America could easily be seen coming didn't make its arrival any less destabilizing. In thinking about the many ramifications of the Dobbs decision today, social, political, and health-related, we at O'Neill and Seven Letter believed it could be informative to use our podcast to look back as a retrospective on that period leading up to and immediately following the decision in Roe versus Wade, and to use the words and experiences of those who were the advocates and activists for reproductive rights at that time here in Massachusetts and in the nation's capital to do so. Author-activist and feminist historian Bell Hook said that we make the revolutionary history, telling the past as we have learned it mouth to mouth, telling the present as we see, know, and feel it in our hearts and with our words. Today, we are privileged to welcome three women who have joined us to provide their perspective from those battles in the 70s on the challenges we are now likely to confront around reproductive rights here in Massachusetts, in a state at the forefront of protecting abortion and a woman's right to choose, and perspective on those battles across the nation as the Supreme Court appears to have flipped the calendar back to pre-1973 America and empowered a growing number of states to enact laws limiting or entirely protecting, prohibiting rather, abortions and reproductive health services to tens of millions of Americans. We will hear from Susan Weber, an activist in the 1970s, before eventually becoming the vice president 
for Institutional Advancement of the Planned Parenthood League of Massachusetts, raising millions of dollars to build facilities and expand reproductive health services here in Massachusetts. Betsy Stengel, the lead lobbyist for the Religious Coalition for Abortion Rights and the cultivator of a massive network of advocates and supporters in 1973. And then Dr. Jennifer Childs Roshak, who has served as the president of the Planned Parenthood League of Massachusetts since 2015 and the first physician to serve as the head of its advocacy and political arm as well. The structure for today's podcast will be different from past episodes. There will not be questions of our participants. You will hear the stories and insights of our guests directly with few, if any, interruptions. Their narratives and historical perspective provide the best reflection on the challenges we face today. We hope you enjoy the first episode of this special series of OA on Healthcare on the implications of the Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. Thank you for listening. Uh, my name's Susan Weber, and I've been active in and concerned about the issue of reproductive rights for 50 years. Um, my first political activity uh, was that I signed a petition in the 70s, and I was at work one day, and I got a call from my state senator, which was, you know, I, I barely knew who he was. I was totally apolitical. Um, I was, uh, you know, working and a single mother and that um, was the last thing on my mind. And I got a, a call from my state senator saying that he noticed that I had signed a political, uh, uh, I had signed a petition about reproductive rights. And did I know anybody else who lived in Arlington where I live? Uh, to who was pro-choice because he was personally pro-choice and people were not actively involved in the issue and he was getting a lot of flack from the other side and so could I do a little organizing to get some people to support his position because that was the way he wanted to vote um, and it just made me realize how important the issue was and how controversial the issue was I was kind of oblivious at the time, because everybody I knew cared about this issue. Um, and when the opportunity arose for me to work at Planned Parenthood in 1983, I was extremely excited about it. Um, and so I worked there from 1983 until 1999. Uh, it was tumultuous years. It was the years of the shootings where we lost a staff member when John Salvi came into the clinic and, and um, killed a, a staff member of ours, a wonderful young woman who was working as, as the receptionist. Um, and a lot was going on around parental consent and all the other issues, Medicaid funding for abortion. Uh, we actually at that time had a referendum about abortion rights. It was a statewide referendum in 1986. The anti-abortion group said that it was just about Medicaid funding for abortion. We said it was to give the Massachusetts legislature the power to regulate or prohibit abortion. Um, and we worked really hard to pass that, uh, I mean, sorry, defeat that amendment um, with a, uh, a vote of, of 
56 to 44 percent. Um, things have changed a lot since then, but I am terrified that we're going to go back to those days that that uh, we feel like in Massachusetts that that uh, abortion rights are fairly secure for now. But my recollections and what my experiences have told me is that you can't count on anything. And unfortunately, we're going to go back um, if if uh, the powers that be think that that's the right thing to do. So it's our job to to make sure that those powers stay pro-choice. Susan, let me ask, ask you a question. Um, Massachusetts, because of the fact that it has passed laws protecting the right to abortion and has been at the forefront uh, in terms of protecting not only the rights of women to abortions, but also the rights of providers uh, to provide those services. Do you expect a significant influx of women from states where they're limiting or um, prohibiting abortions into Massachusetts? You know, it, it, I, I will answer that, but let me start by saying Massachusetts is interesting because we were, um, it wasn't until 1966 that married women had the right for, for contraception. And in 1972 for unmarried women, we were among the last states in the nation um, in that respect. Uh, we, we uh, the parental consent laws were, were many of them were, were based on the laws that were started in Massachusetts. So even though right now it looks like we have very good uh, abortion uh, laws for the provision of abortion services and safety for providers, uh, things can change. Uh, that's why we have to stay vigilant. Do I think that people will come to Massachusetts? Absolutely. Um, I'm on the board of reproductive equity now, and we're tracking that, and we are seeing that um, the number of uh, abortions provided to out-of-state recipients has gone up dramatically, and we don't know what's going to happen in states like New Hampshire, uh, states in the area, plus a lot of people are coming from as far away as Texas and Missouri and Louisiana and Alabama, Mississippi. Um, those are the states that I know of offhand where people are coming to Massachusetts. Um, some have family or friends here and uh, and some come with nothing. And we in Massachusetts have to be able to help those women who need the services that they're getting. Um, I'm going to ask this question of, of Dr. Charles Rorschach when, when she comes on, uh, but I'll, I'll ask you as well, and that is uh, the question of, of whether you think uh, we're prepared uh, in terms of having the services in order to deal with the, with the influx of people that we're likely to expect. Um, well, you know, we don't have providers to equally throughout the state. Um, we have several providers in the Boston area, but uh, the state is not well covered and people in certain parts of the state have to travel two or three hours to get to a, a provider. Uh, certainly the advent of medical abortion uh, is, is, has changed in the last few years 
dramatically. Uh, and we were lucky enough this year to pass a law that said that, um, for example, that the health services at the Massachusetts colleges and universities are going to are going to provide medication abortion, but it's still for those for their students, but it's still not our state is not um, we just don't have enough providers to, equally throughout the state so that people in more rural areas will have a harder time finding a provider. You know, and, and it's really important to have a provider nearby because you want to get the follow-up care that you need. Um, and um, you want to have a continuation. Everyone should be having a, a person uh, to take care of their gynecological needs. I don't want to steal any of uh, Betsy's thunder um, when, when, when she comes on, uh, but I was curious about your reference to the fact that Massachusetts has not always been at the forefront uh, uh, in terms of uh, protect, protecting uh, reproductive rights. And I'm, I'm uh, reminded of the fact that uh, Congresswoman Peggy Heckler uh, was one of those who was uh, one of the real opponents of uh, abortion rights in the Congress during that period of time, just uh, pre and post Roe. That's right. I mean, certainly before Roe and around contra uh, the days of the fights about contraception, um, Massachusetts was one of the worst states, partially because of the influence of the Catholic Church, um, which was very, very, um, vehemently opposed to both contraception and abortion. Um, and, um, you know, our, our, my, our law about minors was one of the first in the country and um, very, very stringent where originally uh, when first passed, a, mine, a person under the age of 18 needed permission from both parents in order to get an abortion. And, um, even if one of those parents um, was the person who made her pregnant. Um, there were cases of incest where she had to get permission to terminate a pregnancy. I mean, when you think about it, it's just crazy um, how backwards Massachusetts was. So at the, at the time, same time, we have a reputation of being so liberal, but yet, um, it was a hard, it was tough for people. I mean, you hear stories, people from Massachusetts went out of state to get abortions pre-row. Um, there was a network of, of doctors who would refer women to other states. Um, many of us remember the days when we had to accompany friends to New York and further away in order to get procedures. Um, group of people I knew, um, and I finished college in the late 60s, um, you couldn't get contraception unless you were married, but some doctors would uh, prescribe the contraception if you were engaged. So I, I had one set of friends who had a fake diamond ring and it was passed around from person to person <laughs> so they could uh, go to the doctor and say that they were engaged. Um, if you needed contraception as a single woman. Wow. Yeah, it's, uh, people don't believe it now. Um, you know, my 
I my daughter was born in 1969, and um, in the hospital, I went home from the hospital on my 25th birthday, and the woman in the next bed, I was not living in Massachusetts at the time, but the woman in the next bed said to me, I didn't know you could still get pregnant when you're 25. That was the situation with sex education. That was the situation with um, sort of the way people talked about issues around sexuality. And we still have a long way to go where, um, where we have sex education in the schools and people will know that you can, yes, have children after the age of 25, especially nowadays when people are having children well into their 40s. Well, one of the reasons that we thought it would be instructive and worthwhile to do this retrospective is precisely that reason. And that is that um, I don't think that there are a lot of people today who realize what things were like then and what people's thinking was then and how little the knowledge was then about sexuality uh, and issues surrounding sex. So, um, and reproductive rights. So um, it, it's incredible. You know, it's totally incredible. When I think back to those days, first of all, there were, uh, think about the fact that contraception was not available, the pill was not available, um, none of the other birth control methods other than condoms were available, and people didn't talk about condoms, at least the women didn't talk about them very much. Um, and um, so first of all, there was no contraception, no way to prevent pregnancy. There were no pregnancy tests so uh, at home. So people would have to go to um, these centers that did pregnancy tests. Um, there was no access to abortion in Massachusetts and you had to find a place in another state or another country. People were going um, to Europe. Um, I knew several people who went to Europe to have procedures. Um, and, and that's just not a good idea because you're not getting any follow-up care. Um, and um, I remember working at the welfare department when I got out of college and I had a client who said something to me once that I never could get over, um, which was that uh, she said, I wish that they had had birth control when I was younger. And I had grown up knowing about birth control because my mother had talked to me about it. And when I talked to her about it, she said it was because she had a private doctor and but the woman who was on welfare had to go to a clinic at a public hospital and therefore, and they were pre prevented by law from talking about contraception. So there was no way for her to prevent any of her pregnancies. Wow. It sounds like it's another world. And yet we're talking about um, the 70s. Uh, you know, it, it was 50 years ago, a long time ago. Yeah. We can't go back to those days. We just but, but it can't. sounds as if, yeah, but it sounds as if in many places today we seem to be going back to that world and oh. we seem to be going back to that time. All the states that are thinking about, uh, all the states that are, are uh, 
thing that's limiting abortion access. Um, It's terrifying. And they're talking about contraception. I mean, uh, Justice Thomas said specifically contraception. And um, I don't think the women of America are going to put up with that. I just don't think so. I think that when we think about um, the important discoveries in the last century, um, I was with a group of people playing a game and one of the questions was, what are the most important discoveries of the last century? And, you know, the answers were the car, but all the women agreed that the that the advent of the birth control pill was in fact the most important uh, discovery of the last century. Morning. My name is Betsy Stengel. I was an active advocate in 1973 for abortion rights. And I'm gonna be talking about the scene in those days the scene before Roe and what the legislative environment looked like at the national level post Roe. Just a few weeks after the Roe versus Wade decision was handed down by the Supreme Court, a group of national religious organizations was convened by the United Methodist Church with with a clear knowledge that there were already legislative efforts in place to limit the Roe decision. And so they convened this coalition of religious organizations with whom they had already been working at the national level on civil rights, uh, social justice issues. And this group included, besides the United Methodist Church, the National Presbyterian Church, the Unitarian Universalists, the Union of American Hebrew Congregations, the American Baptist Church, National Council of Jewish Women, United Methodist Women, and several other um, organizations, which eventually grew to 13 national organizations that advocated for abortion rights. It's important to note that while they had in common their advocacy on civil rights issues and social justice issues, they did not come to their advocacy on abortion rights from a common place. They differed widely on their definition of when life begins, on personhood, on the role of a clergy in terms of consulting with a woman facing an unwanted pregnancy. But they came together with a very strong belief that no one religious viewpoint should be embodied in law. And that was their common purpose. And they also came together from a past experience before Roe in dealing with women who were facing unwanted pregnancies. And this was very important. The danger, many of them, many of these organizations had clergy who had been involved in counseling women, more and even more than counseling, getting women to the very few safe abortion locations in the country. Eventually, when abortion was legal, there was New York, uh, to some extent, there were there was at some point California, but it cost money and it required travel and it required knowing that there was a safe destination in place. 
And these clergy, both Jewish and Protestant, risk their safety, their legal freedom, in order to get very desperate women to safe providers. This was the background that they brought to their, to their experience when they put together the Religious Coalition for Abortion Rights. And I will note that the name of that organization pre-Roe was the Clergy Consultation Service, and they truly deserve a place in the history before Roe of people who risked a lot in order to get women to save abortion. The other, of course, my generation is uh, it, who grew up in the 1960s, 1950s even, and came into the 1970s before abortion was legal, so many of us either experienced personally or knew someone who had had to obtain an abortion for to deal with an unwanted pregnancy. My own mother told me about taking her sister to some place in which was literally a back alley outside of New York, where she got an illegal abortion. This was even before abortion was legal, legal in New York State. Fortunately, she was okay after she, she went on to have three children, but many women who went to these back alley abortions died. Many of them, if they did survive, were no longer ever able to have children. Remember also that before the 1970s, contraception wasn't available to unmarried women in many states in the United States, including Massachusetts. And in fact, in Massachusetts, even unmarried women weren't, uh, even married women weren't allowed to have contraception uh, until that case went to the Supreme Court and uh, was the Massachusetts law was eventually struck down. But the women who did get protection, reproductive protection, were usually women who could get it through private doctors. And so right there, you have the line being drawn that it continues to be drawn on the abortion issue, which is women who could afford to get the care and the protection they needed got it. And the women who didn't were marginalized, poor women who could not afford it or had no means of accessing safe care. And that sets the stage for what happened with Roe when Roe was decided. As soon as Roe passed, Roe was handed down by Supreme Court, it became clear that there were going to be legislative measures offered in Congress to try to limit access to abortion. In February of 1973, so weeks after the January 22nd Roe decision, Representative Margaret Heckler of Massachusetts introduced a so-called conscience clause bill, the right of conscience in abortion procedures to protect medical staff at uh, hospitals, even if those hospitals received federal funds, but protect those medical pr practitioners who did not want to have to provide abortions. And subsequently, in the months that followed, there were a number of other similar 
amendments that were offered to various pieces of legislation, most notably, and the one that people are sort of most familiar with was the Hyde Amendment to prohibit the use of Medicaid funds for abortions, which of course would impact only women who had to rely on Medicaid for their health care funding. There were also amendments offered to limit federal funds for abortions for those relying, who had to rely on federal funds for their health care, including federal employees, military women, women serving in the military, military spouses, Native Americans, many of whom are covered by a national program, federally funded, inmates of federal prisons. And then, of course, there were also foreign aid bills where there were amendments offered limiting, prohibiting any of the funds in those bills to be used for abortions at uh, clinics that the U.S. government funded, mainly in Africa and Asia. So it became clear that these pieces of legislation were going to be offered and that a strong advocacy effort was going to be needed to counter the legislation. So beginning several months after Roe, coalition came into play of many national organizations who then became, became united in their efforts, both in Capitol Hill and in the States. And interestingly enough, Many of those coalition members still work together now to protect abortion rights or in the wake of Dobbs, Dobbs of the Dobbs decision to try to advocate for change. The organizations that came together in 1973, in addition to the Religious Coalition for Abortion Rights, on, with whom I worked and was hired as their main lobbyist and a community organizer. In addition to RCAR, there was NARAL, which had uh, National Abortion Rights Action League, which had existed before Roe. Planned Parenthood, of course, and their Washington office, the Allen Guttmacher Institute, which is now an independent organ pro-choice organization. The ACLU, National Organization for Women, National Women's Political Caucus, Zero Population Group, some labor organizations, League of Women Voters, and some civil rights organizations, um, including the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights was sort of interesting. These organizations understood the point that if you limit federal funds for abortion, you are really going to be limiting only certain populations to access to safe health care. So what did the political scene look like in those days? In 1973, the US Senate, which was the 93rd and then subsequently the 94th Congress, if you can believe this, there wasn't one woman in the US Senate until 1978 when Nancy Kassebaum was elected to be the Senator from, from Kansas. So, there were 100 men looking at legislation to limit abortion rights. Just a stunning scenario. And I have to tell you, as 
somebody who walked the halls of Congress. Pretty uncomfortable situation for us. Today, in today's world, in, 19, in 2022, virtually all Democrats now, not all, but pretty much, pretty much all, are pro-choice. And Republicans are the anti-choice force in the legislatures and in Congress. In fact, in 2018, the last Republican pro-choice member retired from the House, Charlie Dent of Pennsylvania. So there is literally not one pro-choice Republican in the House of Representatives at this time. There are two Republican pro-choice Republicans in the Senate. One is Lisa Murkowski of Alaska and the other is Susan Collins of Maine. Interestingly enough, in 1973, this scenario was really very different. In fact, kind of flipped. Uh, we, the leaders in those days on the Senate side, the most vocal pro-choice senators were Republicans, specifically Ed Brooke of Massachusetts, Jacob Javits of New York, Bob Packwood of Oregon, Chuck Percy of Illinois, and Lowell Weicker of Connecticut. All of them were um, very vocal and really not afraid of the issue. And on the Senate side, on the Democratic Senate side, you had Abraham Rivikoff, Ted Kennedy, Alan Cranston, Harrison Williams, Claiborne Pell, George McGovern, Walter Mondale, Mac Mathias. So all of them came to this issue, understood it to be an equality issue. But I will assure you that particularly on the Democratic side, to a man, and it was all men, these Democratic senators hated the abortion issue. All of them were from a generation that didn't discuss anything related to sex or bodies in public. And they were painfully aware that they knew little, very little about women and women's physical situations. They were hugely uncomfortable with this and they knew that they had no place discussing abortion rights, women's health on the floor of the U.S. Senate in detail. They were also politically terrified of the U.S. Catholic Conference and their own Catholic constituents. This is an interesting, just a comparison, another comparison to today. In those days, the U.S. Catholic Conference was visible, very visible, and had lots of money that supported anti-abortion advocacy. And the evangelical movement was nowhere near as visible. In fact, they were invisible nationally. And today, while the Catholic Conference does support anti-choice advocacy, um, they are not anywhere near as visible on the Hill or in state legislatures physically, um, but it's the evangelical movement that is way more vocal and representative. So Republican senators, Ed Brooke and Jacob Javits were the ones who took to the floor most often and uh, advocated for uh, choice issues against the Hyde Amendment and the Conscience Clause and other pieces of legislation that eventually made it to the floor. 
I will say here that it was actually a couple of years before those restrictive measures made it out of committee because the members were able to bottle them up in the committee and not put them on the floor to vote, which was popular with members of Congress because they really didn't want to have to register uh, their votes on this issue. A particular um, notable effort on the Hyde Amendment came in 1976 when the Hyde Amendment passed the House and was and headed to the Senate. And Senator Jacob Javits was the ranking Republican on the Senate Labor and Health Committee. His staff director called us in and said, you have 30 days during which we will keep the bill in committee and you have 30 days to launch your advocacy ad effort, turn as many se senators to vote pro-choice on this and against the amendment as you can. Um, and then we have to bring the bill to the floor and, and the Hyde Amendment is, is gonna be in it. So after 30 days of reaching back across states to the senator's constituents, doing a lot of in-person lobbying on the Hill, Bill, the labor HHS bill came to the floor. We had been assured by Senator Ted Kennedy's office that while he would probably vote against the Hyde Amendment, we could not count on him. His vote wasn't totally sure, but he, we could definitely not count on him to speak. And lo and behold, when the measure came to the floor, Ted Kennedy went to the floor of the Senate and delivered a stemwinder speech about equality and uh, the unfairness of limiting funding for abortions, just uh, uh, keeping making it impossible for poor women to get abortion services. Uh, it caught everybody, including his staff, by surprise. We heard later that um, not only did he catch hell from the Catholic Church, but his two sisters, Eunice and Jean, weighed in quite heavily uh, on him. But interestingly enough, Ted Kennedy's voice that day made it made a big difference. And we believe that he actually switched some votes on the floor of the Senate because other Democrats particularly knew what a tough vote it was for him. And they figured if Ted Kennedy can do this, so can we. On the House side, the politics were different. Um, there were, in fact, uh, quite a few women, not as many as there are today, but quite a few women in the House of Representatives in 1973, including some real national leaders whose names are still familiar today. Ella Obzik, Shirley Chisholm, Yvonne Braithwaite-Burke, Liz Holtzman, Barbara Jordan, Pat Schroeder, Barbara Milkowski, Millicent Fenwick. They would come together every several weeks when, met, when restrictive measures were threatened on the floor and call the pro-choice advocates together for meetings. So they would strategize with us, count votes, discuss how to move forward. I sort of have this wonderful memory of Barbara Milkowski, who was, went on to be a senator, but was a House member then. It was like five feet tall, if that, um, sitting next to 
the very regal and carefully dressed and coiffed Millicent Fenworth of New Jersey, who was a Republican. They called each other Sister Barbara and Sister Millicent. And they were just brilliant in encouraging all of us and a wonderful example of collaboration across uh, party lines. It was a real pleasure for me to work with these amazing leaders uh, who were known nationally for advocating for women and were willing to sit down with us and help our efforts. Unfortunately, a lot of our advocacy was unsuccessful. Although the Democrats controlled the House, many of them in those days were Catholic and continue to be so, and came from working class anti-abortion Catholic districts uh, and were really reluctant to go against what they believed was the um, anti-abortion opinion in their districts at the time. The Massachusetts congressional district was actually split. You had Republicans Silvio Conti and Peggy Heckler who were anti-abortion Although, to his credit, Silconti, who was the ranking member on the Labor HHS subcommittee that funded health care, was a vocal supporter of uh, federally funded birth control programs, but he was very anti-abortion. On the Democratic side, Congressman Michael Harrington, Torbert McDonald, and Gary Studs were pro-choice. Um, and hugely no notable, also Democratic Congressman Father Robert Drynan, who was pro-choice and was severely uh, re restricted or punished by the Catholic Church because of his uh, position. He refused to change on abortion rights. And now here we are, the Dobbs decision. It was a gut punch for millions of American women. But for those of us, of my generation, it was particularly heart-wrenching and infuriating. We know the law, state laws being passed in red states to prohibit all or most abortions won't keep women from having abortions, but they will mean wealthy women will go out of state while poor and marginalized women will be forced to continue unsafe and unwanted pregnancies. Many of those poor women, having nowhere else to turn, will resort to try unsafe abortions, self-abortions, or seeking out untrained practi practitioners using unsafe methods. Here we are in a world deeply different from the pre-Roe era. And yet, after all our advocacy efforts, and despite the development of safe and easily administered ministered abortifacients, our daughters and our granddaughters are now forced back into an era when abortion is unavailable, depending on where you live in this country. Okay. I'm not sure I have anything more to add to that. I guess the only comment I would add and ask for a comment from Betsy on is it seems to me that we're back in the pre-1973 period because of the Supreme Court decision in Dobbs, where we also need the same kind of political movement 
that we had in that period of time. Um, and it seems that we need it as much and maybe even more in the states where these state legislatures are taking action as we do at the national level. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's not a national issue anymore. It can't be a national issue except to deal with if, if you know, there's another vote on the national level uh, to basically, you know, embody the Roe decision in federal legislation, but it doesn't appear that that's likely. So the focus has got to be on states, all states, because the state, the, the blue, so-called blue states that haven't passed protections, uh, Roe-type protections, need to do so. Uh, Massachusetts has done that, and a lot of other states, blue states, have done that. But that needs to happen because it's we know now it's not a guaranteed right by any matter of means. And then, of course, the focus shifts to the red states. Um, there are already so many groups working on this, but it's a huge challenge. Um, looking at it from my background of working with the uh, pro-choice religious community, I think it's really interesting that there already are some advocacy e efforts on the part of um, faith groups to to object to in those to those states where the legislation defines life as, as beginning at conception, because that's a huge issue for both the Jewish community, community and the uh, Protestant community. And I don't know how successful that effort's gonna be, but, and it, and it sort of gets into the real weeds of religious philosophy and religious belief, but it's important. Um, we aren't very often faced with legislation that, specifically impact the religious beliefs of a, of a large segment of our population. And this does, there's no question about it. Well, thank you so much. Uh, this has been extraordinarily helpful and informative and instructive in terms of what we need to deal with today and confront today and the lessons of the past are are so critical as we apparently confront the same issues that we confronted back then so hi thank you so much for having me uh, my name is dr jennifer childs roshak uh, and i'm the ceo and president at the planned parenthood league of massachusetts and also the planned parenthood advocacy fund of massachusetts so I think the, um, you know, Massachusetts has always been a, a leader in health equity and access to care. And I think with this, this um, in the moment that we're in post Dobbs, you know, I fully expect, uh, and we've already seen this happen, that Massachusetts will continue to in that leadership role. You know, at Massachusetts um, League, um, we are the primary abortion provider for the state of Massachusetts um, in some parts of the, some regions of the, of the 
state, we provide um, close to, to 80 to 90% of abortion care um, and in other parts, um, less so um, due to, to larger health, health, health systems. Um, but we are certainly on the, on the front lines of what we see in terms of what patients need um, and their access both within the state of Massachusetts and also for folks um, who are outside of Massachusetts. Um, we have not yet seen uh, any significant influx of patients. You know, what we fully uh, expect, and certainly the first day of Dobbs, we had a big influx of phone calls, you know, from patients and, and some of some patients from around the country. Um, they find our number and uh, on our counseling and referral hotline and, and they call. Um, but what we've seen has been, and this really started before Dobbs, it started during um, the Texas law SB8, we started to see folks who were coming from Texas who had connections to Massachusetts, people who had either lived here before, had friends and family still in the state, um, who had, you know, were traveling here for work, et cetera. And, you know, we fully expect to see some of the same pattern. Um, we also do expect that, you know, once the bordering states that continue to have access to the states that have now near complete bans, once those states reach capacity, you know, we we may end up seeing um, more folks coming to Massachusetts. And and that is why, you know, the governor's executive order, really an hour after the Dobbs decision came out, and then the subsequent reproductive rights law that went into effect um, just a couple of weeks ago, two, three weeks ago, was critically important because that really focused on how to protect providers who are here in Massachusetts um, and patients who come to Massachusetts for care, how to protect um, our providers who are providing care to patients um, inside and outside the state um, and um, and potentially you know anticipating that that there would be more um, more folks uh, coming uh, coming to to Massachusetts. So you know we have long believed that you know no matter no matter what, you know you where you live, your zip code it really, um, you know, should not dictate your ability to access um, sexual and reproductive health care, health care in general, um, and certainly um, not uh, abortion care. And, you know, I think it needs to be said over and over again that, you know, abortion care is health care. It is standard health care um, that um, is really critically important um, for, for, for folks to be able to access, um, for physicians to train, to be able to provide the services, um, and, uh, you know, and so that's, um, that's really where, where we're focusing right now. Have you been working with, uh, leagues in other states in order to sort of create a network for those young women or women generally who want to travel out of state to, uh, those states that do have, uh, uh, protections for abortion services? Yeah, abs absolutely. And and I, I think the other thing that, that's probably important to point out, um, and again, you know, I, I often say it's it's great to be in Massachusetts, but, you know, um, five years ago, six years ago, when um, a certain someone got elected to office and the promise was to ban abortion, you know, here in Massachusetts um, at, and at PPLM, we believe that. And so, you know, a lot of the work that we've done has been working on building those networks, those relationships with other affiliates um, that not just Planned Parenthood affiliates, but that's the easy connection for us since we're all in a, a big federated um, model together. Um, but, you know, making sure that we had relationships with those affiliates in the red and purple states where we knew the attacks were going to come. You know, um, the other thing that we did at PPLM was, and, and some of this is 
is probably because um, my background is as a primary care doctor and you know, patients need help navigating the healthcare system um, for yeah. primary care and also sexual and reproductive health care. And so one of the things we did three or four years ago, even before the pandemic, was implement an, a patient navigation um, system. So not only do we have a call center for folks to, to call in, get information, um, but we also have uh, have people who can then help that patient navigate the system and figure out where they need to go in order to access, whether it's abortion care, you know, complicated prenatal care, what, whatever it is that the patient needs related to their sexual and reproductive health care, those patient navigators um, are, are helping people get from point A to point B. And sometimes that also includes things like um, transportation. You know, there are a couple of areas in, in our own state, which is, you know, relatively small, where we have abortion desert. So where people are traveling more than 50 or 100 miles to get abortion care. Cape and Islands is one area, other parts of, you know, far Western Mass, um, you know, that where there, there are significant transportation barriers. And so our navigators help with, with things like that as well. So, you know, to answer your question, you know, part of what we're doing is um, that we've been doing is creating this support structure, knowing that this was going to happen, hoping it didn't, but really pretty sure. And so, you know, being ready to make sure that our health centers have capacity to see more patients, that we have a system to guide and navigate patients, whether they're in Massachusetts or outside Massachusetts, um, to the care that they need, um, and then creating those relationships and smoother, warmer handoffs from other affiliates into Massachusetts um, to, to do things. I think the last thing that we have been focusing in on is also, you know, making sure that that we have um, we continue the provider training, um, as you might imagine in Massachusetts with all of the healthcare institutions and training programs. You know, that's that's actually something we've done a lot. Whether it's um, long-acting reversible contraceptive training for nurse practitioners, um, you know, IUD insertions, things like that or abortion care um, for um, OBGYN fellows who are um, doing their fellowships in, in family planning. You know, this whole spectrum, folks need to get trained on providing, you know, basic OBGYN and reproductive health care. Um, and that's something that, that we have continued to expand so that we're ready to help support those other states as well. You uh, alluded to the political issue. Uh, how concerned are you given the fact that we have a, uh, an election coming up in November and um, the concern being that uh, if by, by any chance um, it doesn't turn out the way uh, a lot of us hope uh, and we do end up with a Republican Senate and a Republican House, how concerned are you that uh, there may be an attempt to uh, enact a national ban on abortion? I am uh, I am very concerned about that. You know, I think the the um, the writing has been on the wall. It's been everywhere. <laughs> um, this is the game plan um, for a small group of of people. Um, it's not the national. It's not what it's not what the, the American people want. You know, poll yeah. after poll after poll shows that the majority of Americans, no matter what which you know which lever they pull in the voting booth. Um, what persuasion they are, um, economically, you know, location, all of that. The majority of Americans believe that abortion care should be safe and legal in our country and should be the business of the person who's pregnant and their doctor and not politicians. Yet this minor, you know, this small vocal minority, which is rabidly 
um, attacking uh, everyone's rights, you know, not just people who can get pregnant and women's rights, right? Um, but you know, the playbook is there. So I, I, I am extremely worried about this. Um, I think the antidote um, has to be multi-pronged. You know, it's not just, you know, states like Massachusetts, you know, being able to yeah. stand up and, and you know, um, and work hard to protect people coming in. Um, you know, that's not practical. I think we, we have to work really hard to make sure that people, and and, and I, I know it sounds like, you know, basic civic 101, but people have to actually show up and go to the polls and vote for school committee members, town right. council members, state house people, not just the people who sit in Washington, DC. They have to, it starts at the local level. And um, and so we we have people have to fight back about that and get get people who really represent them to sit in those positions of power, no matter how minor it may seem. You know, we see that all the time. People start in the school committee, then they go to their city Absolutely. council, and, right? So, you know, yeah. I think that's something that um, I would say the uh, the the far right, um, anti-choice, um, misogynistic, racist folks have done. They've done a really good job of that. So, yeah. I think that we have to we have to think about that and encourage people to really get activated. You worked very hard on uh, the Roe Act and, and the Massachusetts law with respect to um, um, getting the protections in Massachusetts that we now have in terms of abortion and mm -hmm. reproductive rights and making sure that providers uh, have safeguards. And uh, are you satisfied that we've done all that we can in terms of those kinds of protections uh, here in Massachusetts? You know, I, I think the the stock answer on the progressive side is like, no, we, we have way more to do. And, you know, yeah. I think we there's always more to do. Right. But I would say I am incredibly proud of the fact that we we do have a state that's done um, done a lot um, and that PPLM and and, and I and, and the team have have uh, in coalition have, have made some of that happen. I, I also think that we we don't know what we don't know. And right now, if you know it, I think, I think we should really take stock of like what what will help us be able to be nimble and respond to some of the other things that are happening outside of the state. So you know, I think we can anticipate only so much. And so um, you know, I would suggest uh, that you know we were you know if we think about an 80 20 rule you know are are we're i think we're 80% of where we probably eventually you know want to be um but i think that that extra 20% needs to be really thoughtful and um and really think about what patients need and what what communities need and um and also you know keep a little reserve to respond to the next few years of onslaught because I to your earlier question I I, I do think that's going to happen and we're going to have to figure out how to respond to that and it can't always be an emergency urgent response so I think having having an eye towards that I I, I feel is is really uh really important but you know there's there's always more to do um sure. even here in Massachusetts uh for sure uh, someone once said um in, in responding to the Dobbs decision that the Supreme Court has basically th flipped the calendar back to pre-1973. 
in real terms, it appears to me that we've also gone back to the position that we need the kind of political movement that we had in pre-1973 again, um, given where we are right now. Yeah, I wouldn't disagree with that. I mean, I think, um, yeah, it's it's above my pay grade for sure, um, you know, the politics of all of that. But, you know, what I know um, and know really well is uh, what patients need, you know, yeah. as a primary care doctor for 30 years now, you know, and, and very much in the trenches. Um, you know, people need basic, you know, healthcare as a human right, you know, um, having access to to healthcare to be healthy just impacts you know every everybody's um ability to participate and um and i think it's things like this where people's fundamental rights to marry who they want to marry you know use birth control or not have a family not have a family like all of these like very basic human rights i think the more the walls close in on that the, you're right. I think the more people will actually like get get angry and get out there and get motivated. And we know anger is a motivator. So um, I think we're seeing that in some of the states around the country with Kansas and, um, you know, and uh, other other states where um, where people have actually fought back at the ballot box uh, and not just for elections, but, you know, ballot initiatives and, and things like that. So, um, yeah, I mean, when when food, shelter, you know, your health and well-being, safety, all of those things are threatened. I think people finally do get up and get on the streets. Thank you for listening to the first episode of OA on Healthcare's special series on the Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization Supreme Court decision. We would like to thank Betsy Stangle, Susan Weber, and Dr. Jennifer Childs Roshak for joining us today. OA on Healthcare is hosted by Joe Alviani and produced by me, Ben Craig, as well as account executive Madison Kelleher. If you've enjoyed this content and you'd like to hear more, please be sure to like, follow, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen.